0: He'll come back for the second. India have won the Test match. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India at home, Lords goes wild. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the 81 All Out podcast. This is Siddhartha Vaidyanathan at Sidvi on Twitter, and uh, today I'm joined by uh, three guests, two of whom are part of the 81 All Out uh, gang, and one of whom. Is a regular listener of 81 All Out, so we'll also say he's part of the 81 All Out gang. Let me introduce the guest first, uh, welcoming uh, from uh, the West Coast in the US, Rohit Naimpalli, who is at Noompa on Twitter, big fan of uh, the NBA and also a cricket fan, somebody who uh, blogs on basketball quite regularly and is also a keen watcher of cricket. Hey Rohit, thanks for
1: joining Thanks for having me. Huge, huge pleasure.
0: Great, great. Uh, wonderful to have you on. And uh, we have, uh, for the first time, I must say, quite surprisingly, we have uh, Deepak Murugesan, who is part of the 81 Allot Gang, who is an integral part of the Other Banana podcast, which is our sister podcast, also an NBA fan, uh, also based in the West Coast of the US. So a lot of commonalities there. Um, hey, Deepak. Great to have you on 81 All Out, man. Took a while. Yeah,
2: good to finally, good to finally come on, Sid. And I assure our audiences that Rohit and I are different people, sir. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there may be more basketball uh, talk here than cricket talk, uh, if uh, we have our way. Except, of course, we also have uh, Ashoka on the show. Ashoka, regular uh, 81 All Out uh, podcast guest, and uh, also great troller of uh, Kartikeya Date, as many of you would know, regular listeners, Ashoka, who is AB AB1 on Twitter, and has also said that he has taken a vote to only watch cricket and no other sport. So, yeah, so he will be the one who will be talking mostly about cricket here. Hey man, Ashoka.
3: I uh, deeply regret that my identity is now
0: troller of Kartikeya, starting, but <laughs> but yeah, fine.
3: I, I would actually actually that should
0: identity. Make, I should make it chief troller because Kartikeya, of course, has like an army of people ready to troll him at any time. Yeah. So uh, yeah we don't have Karthikeya on this pod so this is a KD free pod KD free zone um anyway so uh, we the topic we have for today is uh, something again which is quite general not talking about any match or series or anything but um, it's an interesting one uh, Rohit actually suggested it on one of our email exchanges and I thought it was interesting the topic of fandom and loyalty and uh, what we generally take for granted when we say Someone is a fan of some team or some player or some franchise. Uh, You know, traditionally, there has been a definition of fandom. Uh, This is way way before the uh, age of globalization and the age of satellite TV and Internet and everything, which is like you, uh, you know, you generally support a team that is from your city or from your geographical area. And uh, you regularly would follow the team. You would go to the games, physically go to the games. You would you know, you would have a certain relationship that you would have built over time. But obviously, that has all drastically changed with uh, all the changes that have happened in the world in terms of uh, television, internet, uh, the general uh, immigration and uh, large amounts of immigration and globalization that we have today. Uh, You know, people sitting in uh, Bangalore uh, identify very deeply with a team from small-town Germany, a soccer team from small-town Germany. And this they may have never visited the city. They may have never. Uh, they may not know the language. They may not know the culture of that place. But they stay up late in the night to watch that league and watch that game, and they feel deeply connected to it. And uh, you know, so th- that's just one example. You have various others. So we thought it'll be interesting to talk about this whole changing aspect of loyalty in cricket. Of course, uh, now with franchise cricket here to stay. Um, that that's uh, developing some interesting um, dynamics of uh, who play, people are supporting, the player versus team dynamic. The uh, Generally, you know, what is loyalty? And you also have uh, loyalty can also be an extremely political term uh, because, uh, you know, not supporting your country then becomes then makes you a traitor in some people's eyes, um, which is at some level ridiculous, but which is also very dangerous. When you think about it. So anyway, so these are all like the general overarching themes we'll talk about. We'll uh, go into other sports and other aspects of it. Uh, As usual, uh, reminder, uh, we recently republished Cricket Beyond the Bazaar by Mike Howard. So pick it up. Uh, I'll put the links in Amazon and Flipkart. And so pick it up wherever you can. It's a wonderful read. It was a classic work of cricket literature as far as I look at it. And this is the second book we published after War Minus the Shooting by Mike Marcuse which is about the 1996 World Cup, the travelogue. Uh, but it's also much more than a travelogue. It's uh, some of the best cricket writing that you'll read as well. So pick that up, too, if you haven't. Anyway, so uh, given that, Rohit, you were the one who sort of uh, came up with this thought and uh, started this email exchange with me, maybe you can sort of set the stage about your thoughts on this and what you think and why you think. This is something that is not uh, discussed and uh, interrogated as much as it should be.
1: Thanks, Sid. Uh, Just before I start, one thing: just uh, I I mean, everyone probably knows this already, but it's a huge thanks to you guys for the service you're doing, basically by republishing these books. Uh, I mean, they're both phenomenal books, and hopefully there'll be more to come from your publishing house. But I also think Warman is a shooting. Uh, bears a lot on on this conversation and this topic um, because I mean, Marcus is able to get right to the to the heart of ways in which sometimes fandom is manufactured and you know the way you have this whole superstructure of entities that think about how we can cultivate these various aspects of fandom. Um, And it it had a big bearing on me. Um, Another book, just as a caveat, and I mentioned this to you when I was in in my email, that's kind of influenced how I think about this is um, a book from 1983 by Benedict Anderson called Imagined Communities. Now, Benedict Anderson was approaching the idea of nationalism, but I think actually there's a lot we can take away from how sports fandom is constructed. Uh, One of the things, two two things he points out amongst others. One is that this idea of the nation and this feeling of nationalism is not as old as we think. You know, we think of like the nation is this age old concept, sui generis. like of course you take it as granted. And he, he sort of uh, um, gives the light to that. And I think a lot of that is true with some of the things we take as axiomatic about fandom. I'll try to get to that. Um, And then the other is he talks about how this idea of, nationalism is fostered and what he identifies in the 80s is the rise of print media and the fact that you know people who live in very disparate parts who can't communicate with each other they you can construct this shared entity through a shared vernacular and like the rise of um, I mean uh, what he calls I think print capitalism Um, and I think it isn't a coincidence that you the spread of global spread of franchise sports, but also just the fact that uh, I think the way you put it is, you know, you have people in small towns in India who are rabid Manchester United fans say um, that it's coincided with, I mean, I think globalization, the rise of of uh, social media and um, the internet penetrating so many parts of, of the world. And so just to the first thing about, there are lots of things we take as axiomatic. I think, you know, I, I live in the Bay Area and the Golden State Warriors have been I mean, have been a dynasty for about the last, say, nine years or so, give or take. Um, And so there is this feeling that there are a lot of fans who are bandwagoners. Uh, Maybe this is something we'll get to later. And I think one thing that we take as almost axiomatic about fandom is that that's somehow inherently wrong. You grow up, you either support a team from the get-go or you don't. And I think bandwagoning, there's this sort of pejorative connotation that's distinct from you know, having grown up with it, it's like, oh, you're only here for the good times, um, and I mean, at some level, it's like sports is something we follow for fun. What's wrong with being invested in 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 winning? Like people like winning, you know. So that's that's one. But then the other idea that you know you would support a team instead of a of a specific player, um, I think that's another just fascinating thing to interrogate a little bit. Um, and then, uh, especially, I think uh, you mentioned that both Deepak and I are NBA fans, and I think over time we've seen this shift where you see a lot more people who are say Kevin Durant fans right now, or or uh, you know uh, Kyrie Irving fans, uh, which it's whole set of issues, um, versus versus being fans of teams. And um, I think the third thing I'd love if we can touch on is how this sort of intersects with the rise of things like the IPL in India, which is just a very different model for how we thought about Indian sports. So anyway, I'll just leave it at that. And hopefully that's like some of the background.
0: Yeah, talking about bandwagoners, one point I wanted to, that came to me was during the 2005 Ashes, uh, you know, which was so historic for England and so such a uh, sort of a game-changing moment for England. You know, there were people writing articles saying that, you know, If you were not the kind of person who lived through the dark times of England losing, then you won't understand what it means to win. But that it's such a ridiculous thing to do because in the economic sense, you actually want more people to follow the game in England. I mean, in England, they are they are really desperate for more fans and because football is the number one sport there and they, cricket wants more fans. So you actually want more bandwagoners from the cricketing, pers- economic perspective. But then you have people, you know, pining for saying that, oh, I, uh, you know, I lived through the moments when England were whitewashed, but now I'm finally able to, you know, express my fandom. It's like, Come on, man. I mean, you need you need more people to come in and give the money. Anyway, uh, Deepak Ashoka, uh, any early thoughts about this topic?
2: Yeah, I think the idea of bandwagonism is is sort of rampant, right? Like uh, post two thousand four, it's quite easy to be a Red Sox fan. But the Red Sox of pre two thousand four, they they all the diehards will say like, "Oh, we lived through Babe Ruth's curse and." <coughs>
0: Hundred, you know, hundred years or something, right? When
2: they didn't win, yeah, yeah. Basically, since like nineteen twelve or, or eighteen or some yeah. like ridiculous yeah. year Almost when they traded, years. yeah, yeah. So <laughs> when they when they traded uh, uh, when they Babe traded Ruth. Babe Ruth to the Yankees, and so yeah. like the idea that there is any team has a, a, a set of uh, core fans and then a bunch of Johnny Come late after they start winning. Uh, I think is a is a rampant uh, is a rampant uh, perception. I think across all sports, it's not just necessarily uh, cricket or, or NBA or even the Golden State Warriors. Like a lot of people will give me grief for like cheering for the Warriors because they believe that I have no context for basketball and I. But the fact of the matter is I lived in the Bay Area in 2006 and I watched the We Believe Warriors, who in some senses played with the same level of abandon that the current Warriors do. And the main difference was that they never won anything because they didn't have someone as transcendent as Curry or, or as good a shooter as Clay is. Uh, so the the idea is like, I, I think people rush to adjudicate judgment. And I think that comes a large part from where fandom itself comes from, right? Fandom comes from a certain uh, place of judgment. Like ultimately it comes from... Uh, you know, like it comes from a place of belonging, uh, a certain sublimation of identity. Uh, uh, it comes from that place. And so uh, there's a certain fervor associated with it that, that, that you know, I, I know I don't want to use the word religious, but that's kind of what it is. It's a sort of religious fervor associated with fandom, which you sort of see manifesting in a different, multiple different ways in the collective conscious. Uh, I think the, What's happened? I think like the biggest change for me since, say, whatever 1910 or whenever Babe Ruth was traded to to now is our ability to consume sports as they happen concurrently has just increased multiple fold. Right? You can like the very fact that someone in a small town in India is able to stay up. Uh, I mean, the uh, the fact that the the supply of the the mat, of the soccer match is there to meet that demand um is uh, is very interesting and to me the the big question is someone somewhere built the built the supply assuming that the demand will come and the the complete uh just the complete brashness of that kind of capitalism which is like if you build it they will come uh is like just it's something that i would i mean sitting in the 90s i would never have had the the gall to assume that you know you would be able to watch a galatasaray match uh, uh, at any given time in india like if it, i mean concurrently as it's happening in turkey you can <laughs> you can watch it in in india like that's unheard of and so i think the biggest piece for me is the role that media itself has played in the in the change of fandom right so in terms of and then as the media landscape itself has evolved the fact that it touches and impacts fandom so heavily, it has changed how fandom has evolved as well. And I think like, that's the biggest piece for me. And I, and I hope we cover that uh, in the conversation today.
0: Yeah, I mean, you spoke about the 90s, right? I mean, I think that's pretty much when even a lot of Americans started, uh, American professional sports teams uh, started seeing it. I mean, with Jordan, you know, when he went to China, there was like the, uh, the whole city would come to a standstill because Jordan was there. And, you know, that's when they started seeing how global a sport they can actually make the NBA and basketball. And so I think, you know, those individual players like Jordan and then Kobe after that, and I mean, Kobe also huge in um, so many parts of the world. I think they actually made the NBA much a lot more global than it probably could have been, you know, it would have been in the 80s. But uh, yeah, bringing Ashoka in, Ashoka, you did mention an interesting fact about how all of us in this podcast and also all of us who generally do the 81 All Out podcast uh, met each other primarily through cricket, right, and cricket fandom and how the whole uh, podcast and everything else that we did after that is only thanks to the fact that we love cricket. Otherwise, we would have probably not even been in the same sphere as each other.
3: Yeah, so a couple of points, right, like Deepak was saying about religious power and by and large, that is true. And secondly, the effect of what uh, the effect of technology that has had in sports commentary and sports commentary, I mean, a larger commentary, uh, other than, you know, specifically calling the game, like it has given ability for people who are sitting, uh, and watching the sport at home. It has given a voice to them to, uh, to express themselves. Right. And that has actually changed the contours of how we see fandom in sport. I'll speak specifically to cricket because uh, as someone as all of us have lived through the 80s and 90s of sport uh, sport watching primarily let's say cricket watching we are all monotheist to large extent we are all sachin fans then uh, you know who who then graduated to seeing other cricketers saying okay these guys are also great because of the skills that they possess and uh, you know and how they play the game and approach the game so that is kind of a larger window into fandom for me. Because I I started as a Sachin fan, I was... Every stereotype that you can throw at me, that would apply. Like, turning off the TV after he's out. Like, watching, him, watching it only for him. Then, I mean, at some point, that experience felt incomplete because... But uh, you can say that I also played the game to a very, very less extent. And I knew the match didn't start and stop when a player got out or when the player is played, there is a larger aspect to this. And there are various skills at play and only via noticing those. And the technology of the nineties was the TV, right? And, uh, what television showed us, that's what we picked up. And once you had the ability down the line with matches streaming, you can watch things at convenience. You can watch, you know, uh, highly curated clips and, uh, things in slow motion, ultra slow motion you get a different perspective of the game, you get a window into the skills that different people, uh, you know, applying the trade. That broadens your appreciation. And then you question, there is actually a, you know, a self-existential questioning of what am I doing? Why am I only doing this? And why am I only supporting a player when the opponent is as good or as bad? So, that I think is, is like, you know, a natural progression for a fan. Uh, and it has aided, I mean, it has been accelerated a lot due to technology. Today, I, I, as I was talking to you, I think before we started recording this pod, I was telling you, I'm watching the Dulip Trophy final also in parallel, which I am doing <laughs> right now. It, it, is, it is unheard of. I mean, it is impossible to think that you can do a thing and parallelly watch sports, which has actually, you know, uh, added a lot of dimension into fandom. And... It has given you a lot of data points for you to consider and you know educate yourself about the game, which is which is the most exciting part for me.
2: Yeah, no, I think the one specific thing that I find very intriguing about cricket itself is the you uh, there's the technology piece, and then there's the hyper commercialization piece that you get added on top of it. Like for for example, I see no reason why the Syed Mushtaq Ali Trophy couldn't just be the IPL, you know. Uh, Like, it makes no sense for me that this superstructure exists on top of an already, I mean, it wasn't that popular, I guess, but the the infrastructure existed for a tourney. And yet they created this hyper-commercialized, borrowing heavily from American sports, uh, you know, franchise superstructure on top of an existing structure. Uh, And I, for my, like, for the life of me, I can't understand why they would do that. And it'll be interesting to cover, you know, why why that thing was created and what the impacts it has on.
0: No, because uh, one of the reasons why Lalit Modi was very keen on that because the there there was I mean the BCCI is all set up to have whatever they want. All they would, would have needed is to say, okay, this many foreign players, these teams can all start uh, buying foreign players. You have an auction, and you can basically do the same thing that you're doing with the IPL. But why he was totally against that was because he wanted private investment in specific teams. And when you have a BCCI-owned like, structure, and when then you have a parallel private investment that is backed by the BCCI, he felt would make a huge difference. And I think, to be fair, he's been proven, proven right. I he's mean, been you know, proven right. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, if uh, compared to, say, the Tamil Nadu uh, 2020 team, the fact that you have this entity called CSK, which draws from all over the world and all over India, which is also, I mean, the BCCI is essentially feeding the IPL teams. It's not that the IPL has created any new, uh, any major infrastructure to, you know, like, uh, say, Barcelona found Messi when he was, uh, what, about 10 years old or something, and then nurtured him through and he played for them. It's not like IPL is doing anything like that. But the fact is that they have this parallel entity going on back by the BCCI, which has now become its own monster in its own right. And, People like Ashoka are now diehard CSK fans and all, and uh, but of course Ashoka is probably a diehard Tamil Nadu fan as well, so he's an exception in that case. So, but I want to also talk a bit about the historical aspect of it, and you know I feel fandom has not so much like it. There, there was obviously people in the sixties and seventies. It's not like they they weren't fans of things, but for them, because of the accessibility, things were very limited. So you, what you would read a lot of things in the newspapers, they would be like, obviously, they followed the Olympics and the soccer, the football World Cup. And, you know, they followed a lot of that that was covered in their newspapers. But, for instance, I don't think too many Indians living in the 60s and 70s would have necessarily known much about American sport, uh, you know, any of the American sport, primarily because they weren't probably covered in the newspapers that they were reading or in the magazines that they were reading. But British sport, on the other hand, and the global sport like the Olympics and soccer, I mean, they're huge. I mean, in uh, places like uh, Kerala and Bengal, they've been like, you know, huge fans of Brazil and Argentina way before uh, TV even existed in India. And, uh, you know, th- so that has happened. So I think it's the, the value of access comes into play. There, right? It's like what you can only be a fan of something that you read about or something that you know.
1: Yeah, I, I I agree, and I mean, as much as you know, I'll talk about you know manufacturing fandom and you know this idea that like you know capital is creating it. There is this sen- there is a way in which viscerally being able to feel and watch something is just different. I mean, I remember when I used to read Nirmal Shekhar's reports about Wimbledon, you know, and like it was it was something different to say, oh, I'm a fan of Pete Sampras's game because I read about read about how he served and volleyed his way to Wimbledon versus being able to actually see Federer play on grass or being able to, you know, just see what that looks like and feels like. And I think that is a dimension to sport that like as cynical as I can be sometimes about the way in which fandom is cultivated and curated and I mean guarded in some ways. It's it just you feel it. And I think that's why like you might have a lot more people coming in now. And that can to me that can only be a good thing. Yeah, I I mean I have never seen I'm a huge idiot in
2: Center fan and I've never seen Center drive live. I've only seen Historical, like I've seen Asif Kapadia's clips in the documentary that he made. And like that I've only seen everything retrospectively. And the only way I knew who Senna was was reading the newspaper reports, right? And so uh, good writing has a large, uh, or at least it did in the past, have a large part to play in developing fandom. And I think even before that, uh just verbal reports that you hear from people around you whom you have originally placed your trust in. So parents, older siblings, cousins, et cetera, et cetera, who tell you that, who sort of confer status upon people as, like I I had never seen Gunda Paavishwana bat, right? But I knew at six years of age that he was a very elegant batsman. And that is a standard to aspire to for most batsmen. And there is no way that I had that uh, idea that young without it being a conferred status from people whom I trusted in my inner circle. And so I, I think fundamentally the historical, I think most of us feel a need to be connected to something larger than ourselves, either from an aesthetic sense or from a, uh, you know, uh, from a just like a personal identity sense. And I think, so I don't think fandom is entirely, as, as Ruth mentioned, it's, it cannot be entirely it cannot be entirely manufactured by capitalism, but it can uh, it can be virally grown, uh, you know. Uh, I mean, it can also be, input.
0: and it can also be totally whimsical, right? I mean, I I know uh, I have a friend actually who basically his dad spent about six months in um, Wisconsin way back in the eighties or something, and he just happened to have buy like a Green Bay Packers jersey. And take it to home. And home was England that time. And they weren't watching the NFL or something at that time. But the fact that his dad had a Green Bay Packers jersey made this guy sort of feel close to the Green Bay Packers. And so the moment he started watching NFL, he said the only team I didn't care about were the Green Bay Packers, because there was his jersey at home. It was those colors. And my dad and his dad wasn't even a fan. So it's like just this small, tiny connection to that team, which then made him and now he's like a huge Packers fan. Like he follows all of Packers games. But the fact is that just it just took that tiny thread to then open that window out for him. So it's just, it could be anything that, that just leads you into it, right? Right.
1: And actually, if you don't mind me just going back to something Deepak said, um, I think it's um it's it very interesting what Saga about feeling wanting to feel connected to something bigger, wanting to feel connected to other things. And I actually think there are these twin um sort of impulses that are intention that I think get to some of the issues we started with, with like the sort of um antipathy people feel towards say bandwagoners or something, right? Because simultaneously there's a desire to feel connected to something bigger. I mean, I think I remember when you know, waking up before a bit, before the India-Pakistan match in the 2007 workup and, like, you know, wake up at 2 a.m. on the East Coast to watch it and thinking, like, gee, there are other people doing this at the same time and that just feels cool. This is, like, our thing. Um, and I feel connected to these people. But simultaneously, you see, there's this desire to almost, like, you have your own special thing. Um, and, like, you know, those, those are kind of in conflict because, on one hand, you want to be com- connected to this broader community, but at the same time, you want it to be special. Um which is how, which is why I think you end up with basically half of India claiming to have been in Chennai in '99, you know, in the stadium watching watching the match. So, like, I mean, I think that that's what I think where you get these kind of tension points where people are trying to mediate between the two.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I used to uh, when. I used to get invited to, you know, I mean, a lot of people used to watch this in this U.S. universities. You had this uh, custom of gathering in one room or in somebody's house and watching the games together. And I did that one or two times. But then I just couldn't like I just couldn't watch the match with the same concentration and intention as I wanted to, because invariably you're like having a drink. There's a lot of noise. There's like some there's something or the other happening. You're talking to someone. And so you can't even watch what's happening in each ball. And so I stopped doing that. After that, after that, it's like no, it's like cricket is my thing, and it's my space. And I'll beat all you guys after the game, or you know, uh, you know, we'll we'll find a way to you know uh, meet and talk about it. But uh, I told them it's quite uh, hard for me to watch it as a group. And obviously they understood, it, so it's totally fine. But I'm just saying, it's like the idea of uh, that hardly, you know, that is also fandom, and that space you want to create that sacred space for yourself to watch. And to focus and to have your own little routines that you have, or you know, you you don't want to get up when somebody's batting. You don't you don't want to go to the restroom when somebody when something is happening in the game. All those are little things that you have for
2: yourself, which you probably can't maintain in a community. Yeah, yeah Sidvi, I think that's a it's a very interesting uh, it's a very interesting point that you mentioned. Right, like there's there's this framework of breadth versus depth, and there's a probably a, a there's probably a category of people who are in it for the breadth, right they're in it to get the bare minimum that they need to continue holding that water cooler conversation at the office or at the at school the next day and then there are people who are in it because they're in it like it's like they have some type of deeper commitment to understanding whether the ball that was bowled was a dusra or not right like like uh, can they pick uh, from the action of the bowler as they are striding up to the crease whether it is a going to be a dostra or not right you know who who you, you want to feel you're there you're not trying to feel community with the rest of the people watching the game you're trying to feel community with the people on the field and that's very is very different I think that the, the there's two I think there's two axes of fandom in some senses where you're looking to you're not looking to connect with other fans but you're looking to connect with the people on the field and you're very happy to find someone else like that. Uh, who's very different from the person who's just looking at it superficially to be able to talk about, oh, Harshdeep is a Khalistani because he dropped the ball. Like, that's not the, that is not the conversation at all you want to be having the next day.
0: Well, that that is obviously extreme, but you'll also have these conversations that are like, uh, you know, you go and then you're like, uh, you know, uh, you'll hear somebody say, um, who's this bowler? And you know, looking at Ashdeep Singh, and you're like, okay, now obviously this is the first game that you're watching probably in like five years, right? And that irritates me in a sense. It's like not because I'm some of you know, some elitism saying, oh, okay, I watch every single match, but just because I feel that we are not on the same frequency as uh, cricket watchers, and I feel that while the other person may be a completely well-meaning uh, individual, I just feel that it's not the right time to share that uh, match with them when i probably have seen Ashley bowl in like the last 20 games but they haven't even seen doesn't even don't even know who he is
3: yeah uh, that specific match i watched with people india batted first right so i watched with people people are asking how much should india make what are they i'm like they're batting first dude oh okay <laughs> so so the, so my point is like yeah I, I completely understand that but but i i mean I mean, uh, fandom is all about change, right? Like you change as a person and then your perspectives change over years and stuff like that. I kind of become very, very tolerant to, you know, a lot of opinions, which I see because I have held them at some point, right? I have held some kind of, you know, misguided belief at some point, right? Friday, you should not be playing Pakistan because they, you know, they do the namaz and they get special powers and then they beat come and beat India and Sharjah.
0: Maybe at some point I would have believed that. Uh, uh, I think somebody actually looked at the stats of that, and uh, it's not like many of those games weren't even on a Friday. So our, that Friday just took on that extra meaning because we probably had like some three of the most important games we remember that were on yeah, a Friday. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so yeah, but but that doesn't you know diminish the fervor in which you hold
3: the views. I mean, when you hold that view, you're very convinced that that view is true. But, you know, as you grow, it, these all become very, you know, funny to me. And I live for that experience. I live for people who say such things. I find the humor in them.
2: Yeah, I know we talked a lot about technology and sort of access expanding. I, I wonder if it, I, I, for me personally, it has mattered immensely actually watching a sporting event live, right? I think like the, the sporting events that I've seen live, most have been NBA games. Uh, and then I've seen uh, cricket games and then baseball games. And I've never seen any other sport like more or less, I think. Oh, and I've seen tennis live because Chennai, thankfully for a brief amount of time had a had a tennis tournament, an ATP level tennis tournament. And so uh, I think it, it makes a lot of difference. And I think uh, in the sixties or the seventies, in the early times, uh I suspect there were there were probably fewer sporting events overall. Uh, but I also think proportionally the demand to see them was also lower. And so likely that a a greater proportion of the population had seen something live. And uh likely that the higher degree was that they had seen a local team. And when I say a local team, I don't just mean like you know, the Florida Panthers or the or the or the Green Bay Packers or the Warriors. I mean like the local high school team, uh the local college team. And I think <laughs> I think the the one thing that's very common in America is that like everyone has seen a sporting event life, right? Like starting at the high school level. It's almost part of the It's not true anymore, maybe now, but it's very much part of the ethos in America. It's less so, I think, in India where I grew up. Like, If I so chose, I could have... And I think if it hadn't been for the tennis tournament like happening directly behind my school, I would have gone through my entire schooling never having seen a sporting event live. And I think that materially changes how you view and... Consume spot I think the live experience really matters
0: I, I agree and I also think that uh, the li- in within the live experience itself there are multiple sort of uh, 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 ambiences where you can actually take in the game like uh, you can go to a Ranji Trophy game where there's you're the only person there or you're one of like 10 people there and then the only other people there are the players and their uh, maybe a couple of their friends and families and then that is that is also an experience, right? Because it's quiet. All you're hearing is the sound of the bat and ball and the fielders and this and that. I mean, there's hardly anyone around. So that is one kind of thing. And then you have the packed stadium experience where you probably find yourself behind a pillar and can't even see uh, a lot of the action or you can't see much of the field or you're in some you know uh, crazy height and altitude where the players are basically just ants moving around in the middle. But yet... You feel something that's happening. You feel the crowd. You feel the size. You feel that that great, uh, you know, ex, uh, communal experience that you have. And then when you when you uh, if your team wins, and then when you're walking out of the stadium, you actually have you actually feel the vibe there. And if they lose, you actually hear the silence as you go along. People sometimes you may see someone crying or uh, anything, right? So that all those gradations of the physical experience, and it's interesting how it is so far removed from the TV experience because TV is actively trying to give you something that's completely different from what you're experiencing there because they're trying to get you as close as possible. They're trying to make the players as... Uh, you know, tight as possible in terms of their looks. They, you know, they're not even giving any space between Virat Kohli's body and the rest of the field. It's like they're just focusing on Virat Kohli's body. Like uh, The whole picture should just be Virat Kohli. That's it. And his face and his expressions. And that should be, become a meme. And, you know, that's that's what they are going for. So, it's, it's very interesting how, you know, you go... If you're somebody who is, like, regularly going to games, how your outlook of the team and the players and things can be quite different from someone who is just watching it, watching every game on
1: TV. It's worth thinking about, I guess, which of them lend themselves better to expanding fan base versus which allow them to kind of allow you to dial in deep on your own fandom, right? So, I mean, I think one of the amazing things about watching any any sport live is it just gives you a feel for the physicality and the athleticism of the event in a way watching on TV can't. Like, I mean… I, I don't when I, the first time I went and watched a match in Chinnaswamy, I think that's when I first had an appreciation for just how fast international bowlers bowl. You know, I mean, I would always think, okay, you have the really fast bowlers, and then you have Glenn McGrath a little slower, and then you have, you know, Sort of Gangali and stuff. And then you see Sort of Ganguly bowl and you go, oh wow, that that's that's faster than anybody I've ever seen bowl. Um and similarly, when like, you know, you, you're in a stadium and you watch LeBron James coming, you know, barreling down the lane, you know, give the guy a medal for just stepping in front of him to take a charge right so that's the kind of thing i think you get in person that you don't get on tv but on the flip side so when i watch a basketball game i typically like to watch on tv because i have like a couple of stats sites open and i'm checking what's happening um but and i so i think it's much easier for me to gain an appreciation for some of the more analytical aspects when i'm watching on tv which i really can't get in a stadium or watching i mean watching cricket for instance i think You know, I've never been, I don't think I could be in a stadium and get an appreciation for just how much Jadeja is able to pitch the ball in the exact same spot, ball after ball after ball, and hold that one end up. But watching it on TV, you can pretty easily do that. And and
3: one thing that has always annoyed me about uh, stadium experiences is that if you're distracted for a second and somebody makes a noise to your right, you turn and then a wicket falls, there is no replay. And you're Pissed because there are only ten wickets that fall, and then you have missed like ten percent of your <laughs> your action. So, so that has always worried me. I mean, um, I do agree that uh, uh, there is a value in watching uh, uh, matches in in the stadium. The, uh, it's it's a completely different experience. But for for the reasons that I just said, I I would rather you know prefer watching it on TV. I mean, I've been saying this for years now, and I've been pilloried uh, in various circles because. People are like, but you never get the feel. I, I'm like, I'm not about the feel. I'm just, I, I want to watch the match. You know, and now uh, with Sony Live, you can go back to specific instances in the match where a wicket has fallen. So even if you are watching at home and you are, you know, away for a bit, you can come back and see that specific point where the wicket has fallen. So they do like uh, live highlights. So those are things that technology can provide. And if you are into, you know, uh, uh, deeply observing the game, you can benefit from
0: technology that you cannot in a stadium. Yeah, I also, yeah, I I also think there's a deeper point here about how you uh, sort of view the game and how you, uh, you know, the things that start mattering to you, the uh, sort of things that start really affecting you. I think, a lot of times when I go to the game, like if I used to go to a cricket game and there was like a bad umpiring decision and you're like, okay, I mean, whatever. You sort of and often, even as a in the press boxes, which are like right behind the bowler, you can get a sense, okay, that is probably a bad decision. That is probably going higher. But then the moment you start watching it on TV and the multiple replays and then the analysis of the commentators, plus then you go on social media and then you see the mass outrage that's happening there. I think then that particular dismissal starts mattering to you so much more than it would have when you are actually on the field, because on the field you like you see it, you're like okay, and then you sort of move on to the next thing. But I I feel like the whole sort of my whole uh, sort of priorities change when I'm in the field and when I'm when I'm in the ground and when I'm uh, on watching on TV, and that impacts fandom too, right? Because eventually you're like. That, that's all the emotional churn that you're going through as a fan during the game. And and somehow I felt like I'm far less angrier when I'm uh, on the ground, which is also strange because on the ground is often when you have these uh, crowd disturbances and people throwing bottles and all that has also happened. So obviously, there is that charged value to it. But generally, when I'm at the ground and when I come back, I'm far more relaxed irrespective of what has happened in the game. Than I'm on TV when sometimes I tend to get very worked up
2: about things. Yeah, the interesting thing for me is the fact that it's quite unlikely that we all, that 100% of our game viewing experiences are either live or on TV. Right? It's, what happens is that it tends to be a mix and match. And in a percentage of, on a percentage basis, you're likely viewing 80% on TV and 20% on uh, live. I mean, if you're lucky, you you 20% of your sporting experience is live in in your life in your life. I think what happens is that they they tend to reinforce each other in some ways. So uh like for example, uh I think going to a basketball game live made me focus more on what's happening off the ball than uh I do when I was purely watching the game on TV, right? Yeah, because you can't
0: even see what's happening off the ball often on the exactly
2: most of the time you have that view that is like to the like you know somewhere midway up half the court right and uh, there are certain things happening that are just so surrounding the ball that you don't uh, you don't even like watch you don't watch the back screens you don't see the player cutting until they actually receive the ball in their hands and they lay it up and so. like And you basically notice nothing on defense because you're just watching the offensive players. And so, like, it it really, uh, at least for basketball, it's really augmented the way that I watch the game. And I think it's combining the two, combining the live experience with with the TV watching experience has forced me to just be a better fan, actually.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, absolutely, I mean, when I was uh, used to go to games to cover, I used to really love like trying to you know first of all I used to try and get there early and thankfully I had the access because I was part of the media thing I had the access I I would actually try and go and speak to like you know the uh, groundsman or somebody related to the uh, ground staff just shoot the breeze with them and you never know you might actually learn something about the pitch or about the ground about their own life and that was like a huge part of my sort of early like going there one hour or two hours earlier before the match then even during the match you know small things which you hardly see which you never see on tv almost like the where's the which way is the breeze blowing you know especially when a spinner is bowling you would love to sort of gauge which way the breeze is blowing so that you can understand maybe what they're trying to do or small things like you know there'll be some uh, some fielders, you know, who have this tendency to walk in more than the others, uh, you know, some of them, like, like Ricky Ponting, I remember, used to like almost like have this brisk uh, sort of movement towards the middle. Well, other fielders are like a little more relaxed. So, two small things give you some cues, you know. I mean, when you see Ponting anticipate something as the bowlers running in, it's just wonderful to actually see the ball going there and him fielding it. I mean, that's something that you feel you would have never got on TV and you're actually seeing it in, in live in person and you feel so good about just the fact that you spotted it and you saw it. So those little things, I mean, that it adds so much to your appreciation. And sometimes when you're watching on TV, that's where you wish, you know, you had these small cues like where, them showing the field after every ball or them mentioning some things about the wind. Mean, some commentators do. And some uh, TV production is really good to talk about these things. But... Yeah, you wish they could give you the feel of the ground. But I think TV largely is trying to create a kind of an alternate experience for you, which is different from what is in the ground, which is sort of shifting fandoms in several ways. So I I actually want to get to the point about, um, you know, um, when initially when the IPL started in 2008, one of the big questions that came up was that how are these franchises now going to get? these fans and you know how are they going to be maintain the loyalty you know which is of course a historical question for franchises all over the world but the IPL sort of was going through that for the first time so you know they made sure that they had all these icon players there Sachin for Mumbai uh Dravid for Bangalore you know they all made sure that they are from their respective states Um, I think maybe uh, there was Yuvraj in uh, uh Punjab or something yeah so they made sure it's that so while they were going for the franchise team sort of uh, supporting base, they also were very, very uh, particular about individuals and star individuals being in this team, uh, which is very interesting because, you know, traditionally you people look down upon um, sort of supporting a team for the sake of an individual, right? I mean, if you say, I support uh, uh, whatever, RCB, because I really love Kohli. People will be like, you know, there will be a sentiment of saying, but shouldn't you be supporting the team? Even though I see absolutely no problem in people who like Virat Kohli supporting RCB, I think it's great. I think you can support a team for whatever reason you want and that's perfectly legitimate. But there seems to be a hierarchy of this support, right? It's like team, then maybe like uh, some history or some story or some connection, maybe some family connection. Maybe your dad was a fan of... Uh, you know, Karnataka, and so you are also a fan of the Karnataka Ranji team. And then it's like, finally, the individual is like, ah, okay, so you're like, okay, you're like a semi-fan, kind of. That's the kind of impression it creates. So, but actually speaking, in the economic sense, Virat Kohli will probably be bringing more fans into RCB than any of these other reasons will uh, will be bringing fans. So, economically, it's great to have Virat Kohli in RCB. So, yeah, I mean, talk a bit about that, about this whole individual versus team dichotomy, which uh, often, uh, it doesn't make any sense to me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was interesting, you know, when the IPL first started up um, and my, my parents have lived in Bangalore for a long time and they continue to live there. And so I was kind of teasing them initially and like, course, oh, so I are you all going to be RCB fans? And I think my mom said something like, oh God, I'm not going to support Valyas team. Um, and I thought that was pretty interesting, you know, because it was like, it wasn't the Bangalore team, it was Valyas team, which I actually think really got at the heart of the difference between The way IPL franchises are versus the way, I mean, traditionally domestic cricket in India has been right now, of course, there there are other ways in which private interests are more vested with some franchise versus other, but that's the way in which the IPL is pretty unique. Um, And I, I think it's fascinating to consider in the context of places where you franchise sports have existed for much longer, where you still have this idea that the team somehow merits your loyalty more than any player right and it's it's a little bizarre in some ways if you think about it and I think again this is because we like create these communities and so there's this I mean it's just much easier to ima- create this artificial construct of like RCB fans versus like it's just weird to think of you know a, Virat Kohli, a community of Virat Kohli fans because it's just like stranger to think of that as a common bond so I just think it's cool to see that actually happening um, and I'm all for that personally because you know I, granted, it's pitching millionaires versus billionaires, but at the end of the day, I would still view the players as labor instead of instead of the ownership. Um, and I mean, you, you I, I, th- I think where it's really interesting to think about is in the context of you know franchise football in in Europe, where you you do still have this like private ownership in many places, but historically they've been tied to locations, and especially at lower divisions. And so, um, yeah, I'm not quite sure what to make of that kind of evolution in India and where that's coming from.
0: Yeah, I mean, as an example, I'm like, I, I would watch like Chris Gale, irrespective of where he plays. right? It doesn't matter to me what team he's playing, which team, which format, which this. If I can get, if Chris Gale is batting and if I have access to it, if I can actually get that stream for it, I would watch. I mean, I've seen him play in like, uh, you know, a random, I mean, not random, I mean, they're all important leagues, but I've seen him play in leagues that I would never watch otherwise. Um, You know, I have a Bangladesh league. And I remember I watched him in, you know, playing like a Bangladesh league game. I went to, I mean, I happened to go to Canada to cover one global T20 tournament, which was like one of those experimental leagues where he was playing. And I watched him like this. Absolutely cream the bowling everywhere. hitting like he lost some five balls and all this. I watch Chris Gale anywhere. I cannot claim to be a fan of any of the teams that he's played for. But I'm a fan of Chris Gale. So and and i think people should be happy with you know organizers should be happy to have me because i'm going to tune in wherever chris gale is playing right so why not
2: i remember this this idea of like uh supporting a team being better than supporting an individuals seems very much like an artifact of the 90s to me like bill simmons very famously wrote a column in the page two of espn where he calls the laws of fandom right and it uh, it's just some very circuitous paro- parochialism. It's basically, this is what it comes down to. It's just really, really circuitous ten rules of it's like a buzzfeed listicle of paro- parochialism, right? Like that's and what was
0: that, one of the rules don't support a team for an individual. Was that a rule?
2: No, no, it wasn't a rule, but he has like very specific reasons why you can support a team that is not your own oh. team. There are only like it, you if you're born in a certain place that like that's your team. Like just you know, regardless of what happens. I, I don't think at that point, the concept of supporting a team for an individual was not even on his radar. And I think I sent you guys this uh, link as well, like Seinfeld has this very famous joke where he it actually occurs in the beginning of one of the Seinfeld episodes he reduces all sports fandom to laundry fandom he's like oh you're just supporting somebody's laundry if that person goes to another team you immediately boo you have to like wail against this other person so he specifically makes the point about that it's not about individuals you're just supporting the laundry and like fast forward 10 years later like players are asking for trades on their social media accounts. (laughs) Like like the entire, that entire concept has been, has been busted. Rohit's point about labor versus ownership I think is becoming more and more clear where people are slowly, I mean, outside of the Green Bay Packers who are the closest thing to a federated ownership that exists in the world. Uh, Or there may be, I think there's a couple of clubs in England who might be the same way as well. I Uh, think Barcelona is
0: pretty similar. Yeah.
2: Sure. Uh, So, Like, there's this very famous uh, line uh, that Chris Rock uses when he's talking about, where he's trying to make the differentiation between what it means to be wealthy and what it means to be rich. And the specific example he picks to make that case is he picks Shack. He says, Shack is rich. The white man who signs his check is wealthy. Uh, And he he very clearly (laughs) makes that (laughs) distinction, right? And I think... increasingly what people are starting to realize is that the players look more like more like them than the people who are signing the checks of the players. And then that sort of breeds the loyalty to the players much more than it does to the team. And it's manifested much more in sports like, uh, in sports like uh, uh, basketball, uh, where they, they actually made the choice in the nineties to ride the, To ride the fandom of a player, they made the explicit choice to ride Magic and Bird, and then eventually, and then ride Jordan, and then after Jordan, they were like searching for so long, and then they found Shaq and Kobe, and then they made that specific choice, and then it's in some senses come back to bite the owners, right? And the there's this constant debate of why that isn't the case for the NFL, and they think, look, oh, is it because people wear helmets, and like so you don't actually know, like. Or the, the influence that any one player has on a team, or on the outcome of a game is much lower in the NFL than, say, in, uh, in, in baseball or uh, in NFL or baseball. It's much lower than any uh, than, say, basketball, which is the other big league or hockey. Hockey also is another place where, like, you know, they do wear helmets there, too. But like individual players do have a very strong uh, brand image there. And so and people are still trying to pass out why, but I think it's, to me, like Rohit's point about labor versus ownership is the biggest one as to why I think people have decided to shift uh, loyalties, if you will, from a team to a player.
3: Uh, also, uh, I think it's also a function of time and history, right? Like uh, uh, if I'm a fan of Virat Kohli versus say an RCD, uh, people have seen Virat Kohli as an under-19 cricketer and then come into the Indian ranks, and then you know grow as a player. So they have a you know a visual history of who he is as a player and is, they have seen his growth. But let's say an IPL team like RCB, when it's uh, when it comes into being, then an RCB CSK match is marketed as a rivalry, but it is actually a borrowed rivalry of Tamil Nadu versus you know Karnataka. There is no actual history of a CSK versus RCB rivalry for that rivalry to be established it takes a lot of time it takes a lot of close matches it takes a lot of you know uh, action to happen and then you have an identity as a as a team and once you have an identity as a team you have an identity. i mean fans can then you know have assume identities as you know followers of that team well IPL is just 15 years old i mean 15 16 years old so it's not it's not that long it's not that long of a tournament for it to you know, have historic rivalries. To to even use the word historic, uh, uh, I am, you know, skeptical of using the words such as that. Maybe Chennai, CSK versus MI, they have had a lot of close and, you know, very competitive matches. You can call that a rivalry. It has a shadowy outline of being a rivalry. But teams have to go through years and years of uh, them playing matches to build such a fan base. Whereas, you know, Chris... Gale or a, or a Virat Kohli or a Sachin Tendulkar, we have seen them for a very long time and it's really natural to be fans of them. So RCB first becomes a team where Virat Kohli plays and then it is you know a team that represents Bangalore or whatnot. For for it to go the other way around, let's say a Manchester United or whatnot. So those entities have existed for like decades and and therefore they have a history and therefore they have you know, justifiable fan. So, it's also a function of uh, time. Maybe 25 years down the line, we can say CSK and MI have rivalries which have spanned across decades. But right now, it's too young and you have to remember that on this T20 thing, started as a very frivolous, joyful exercise. It's just hit for fun thing. And for that mentality to slowly change into a serious form of cricket, which uh, for the players is an Employment opportunity for the franchises. It's a business venture and for the fans. It's like a serious mode of cricket to watch on, which has stakes. I think that takes time. Uh, two, 20 years is too short a time, in my opinion, for all such things to mature.
0: It is, but also one of the most interesting uh, uh, teams I find here is that not so much CSK or MI or KKR who have also actually had some success, but an RCB who have not won a single tournament, but who, you know, whose fans uh, have, you know, are probably like, they are so loyal, they pack out the stadiums whenever they can. They are uh, probably the most vocal on, uh, you know, extremely vocal on social media. They have this uh, whole sort of they have a lot of uh, connects right with rcb they have a mascot they have a mr nags they have they have a lot of things going on and then of course they've had great individual players like gail ab and kohli uh, um but it's very interesting i think in the long run the you know and and i don't please don't troll me for this but in the long run i think the longer rcb doesn't win an ipl title is actually like it's that anticipation itself is building up such a huge uh, swell of fan base. And then finally, you know, at some point, they will win. I mean, that's uh, it's not that they will never win. Uh, at least, I mean, I'm talking over the long run of 100 years. They will win something. And so that's only going to, like, usher in more and more, right? I mean, the classic example is Chicago Cubs or the Boston Red Sox that had this really long stretch of, um, you know, drought. They didn't win anything, but then... They are still perhaps two of the biggest clubs in the in baseball, uh, even though they went hundred years uh, close to hundred years without winning. So it's it's almost like you have the bandwagoners coming in for the winning teams, and CSK probably has like uh, thousands and thousands of fans who came in because of Dhoni or who came in because of all those all the titles that they have won. But on the other hand, you also have. Uh, fans going into a team like RCB that is not winning and anticipating that victory.
2: I mean, they're going into Ranji Ranji Trophy matches and screaming RCB. And screaming RCB, right? I mean,
0: that is taking things to a new level. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, so when uh, talk a bit about this building like this fan base, you know, like IPL teams did it in one way, but then there are all these other teams as well, which are, you know, either mature teams in the in other sports or, you know, mature teams, like even in leagues like the CPL and BBL, there are teams that are looking to figure out how to widen their fan base. And they're thinking of terms of loyalty. They're thinking of how to bring more people in. Of course, there's also the uh, cliched, you know, how to get more women to talk cricket, how to get that housewife who's going from the kitchen to the, uh, what, the living room, to how to capture her attention, very Cliche and probably not apt but yeah that is often that is those these are the language that people often talk to get more women and families in you have the in england you actually have the whole season that has been sort of pivoted around the hundred because they feel that at the peak of the summer holidays uh you know they want more families to come in and watch the hundred same thing in australia the bbl is uh, held at the time when the Children are off from school, so that families can come. So you know, even even apparently, like uh, you know, the peak of the test season is now under uh, consideration for rechanged because of this. So you have all this going on, but you you can't just have franchises and teams and expect people to come. You also have to actively find ways to market the product to them, right? I mean, to take it in Dhokam management terms. So. What are your thoughts on that? How are teams doing it? And are some teams doing it better than others? Or what are, are there some examples that come to mind?
1: So yeah, so a couple of things on that. So one is I think I would draw a distinction between teams that are trying to do that as new teams in established leagues versus just entire leagues trying to do that. So I think like a lot of the T Twenty leagues basically every team is new right and so really they're not competing against each other they're competing against something else entirely and so I think that's one so there I think I think the word you use product is exactly right like what they're trying to sell is the overall product and in some ways like you know if if there are more Mumbai Indians fans that's a win for RCD in some ways right because that's more people watching the IPL period Um, I think it's different when you take like I mean, say a team like the Brooklyn Nets, which is just trying to, they're trying to compete. I mean, they're trying to tell fans, like, why should you care about us when you have legacy teams that have been around for 60 years? You know, um, I think one... In, a, in a city like
0: New York, where you have, you exactly. have uh, 10,000 other things to do other than watching the Brooklyn Nets.
1: Including a legacy team that continues to have one of the most supportive fan bases, despite having stunk for two decades now. Um but I think one interesting case, and I don't know how generalizable this is, but I think it's really fascinating, um, is right here in our backyard where Deepak and I live. So in Oakland, there's a Division II, um soccer slash football team called the Oakland Roots. And I think it's really interesting the approach they're taking, which is actually very locally bound. So the kind of backstory here is, I think... Oakland folks feel betrayed by a series of franchises, right? So the Warriors left and moved to San Francisco. I mean, they were originally in San Francisco way back in the day, but you know, functionally they were Oakland's team. They moved across the bay. Um, that's that's one. the The NFL team, the Raiders, decamped and moved to Vegas, and then the Oakland A's, the baseball team, are currently holding the city hostage. Um, and I'm I'm actually seeing regularly A's fans who are just disillusioned and leaving the team. Like that fan, bay, I think that team is bleeding fans at this point. Um, So you have the Oakland roots, and I think the ownership group were very sensitive to this. And they really felt, okay, what we really need to sell people on is, is this is Oakland's team. Like, first and foremost, that's how we're going to establish a foothold. It's not about like, can we put the best soccer team out there? We care about that. Are we second division, not MLS, whatever? And so they've really invested in this kind of a couple of things. They support a lot of the community groups in Oakland. They've also tried to build this farm system in the way that you know traditional. I think European football teams have, like you know Barcelona with La Masia or the various youth academies. They're really trying to build a pipeline and support the local teams and. I mean, you go to the games and it's great. The tickets are cheap. The concessions are cheap, which is actually kind of a big deal at US sports because you can go to a stadium and spend a lot of money just on getting a drink and a small thing to eat. Um, So those are cheap. They have a DJ who knows when to play local music, that kind of thing. Um, But I think that's interesting because it's like an example of something that's clearly very attuned and trying to be responsible to local consideration and not abstract thoughts about like, okay, how can we sell a product? Um, I'd be curious if there are other examples of that, but I think that's an interesting case study to follow,
2: yeah. the the typical the typical things that I've seen are uh, the two uh, there's two of them that I've seen right. One is consolidation. So you'll see and this is historically the ABA and the NBA merge right? They make one there were two football leagues. You just merge them and you make one and or two baseball leagues and you merge them and you make them like two div- two separate divisions of one league. so you, there's a level of consolidation because, uh, divide d- divided fandoms is basically divided share of wallet uh from a from a business perspective. So that, that happens a lot. And I think like more or less you you saw that in cricket as well. You had two competing leagues and one was sort of like uh the uh ICL that was not a cons- the ICL and the IPL. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah
0: one was basically one
2: was basically blacklisted. <laughs> That's it. Yeah one was, was basically thing. like yeah it was consolidated by force. So consolidation is the most uh, is the most common one and you see that from like the most tenured franchise sports even to something as new as cricket the other one is uh like television rights right like in scale and uh, if you even if you think about a a league like the nba that seems so good at marketing itself today you go all the way back to 1979 the finals the nba the nba like championship finals was shown on abc on tape delay so basically you wouldn't even get to see the finals of the NBA championships live. It would be, it would, you know, be recorded and then it would show up later when it was not on prime time, you know, uh, so that it doesn't disturb what traditionally goes on prime time on TV. Uh, and so uh, what, uh, what, like the, they first needed like really strong franchises to show up. Second thing that they did is like uh, local owners started buying like these local cable networks, and this is something that we saw a lot, happen a lot in India as well. You know, like you'd have a a local cable provider who would who would play like the most recent TV a bootleg version of the most recent movie that released in theater. Your local cable provider would play it in the same way. Like Jerry Bus was an example who owned the the Los Angeles Lakers. What he did is he created a cable channel called Prime Ticket that exclusively allowed people to say to see away games as well as home games live. And the explicit reason he did that is because the Great Western Forum, which is where the Los Angeles Lakers played, would only house whatever, you know, 18,000, 20,000 people, like even fewer probably. And he said, I cannot have that be my only revenue source. Those ticketing, ticketing at that event cannot be my only revenue source. I need people to watch some And so he created essentially the first, subscription streaming sports service, which is like a cable channel that allowed you to watch the Lakers wherever you were in the broader Los Angeles geographical area. And then that eventually merged with ESPN and and so on and so forth, right? So like that, what people try to do is then expand coverage and then get better TV rights and sales and like viewership. And so eyeballs is the other thing. And then the third thing that happened as a result of this expansion is that he found that demand shot up for the live Events. Because you when you expand your base, you now have more people wanting to see stuff live and he's able to raise prices. And so you have this sort of like flywheel of oh, more people wanting to see, more demand for live, and then that goes up. And so like I think in some senses, we are now at a stage where that that second lever of like expansion through television is completely off the table right like now like that's like the starting point you have to have tv rights you don't even like you, you can't expand that in any way uh and so the the challenge is primarily uh doing uh what uh one of two things happen like building that local uh the 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 avenues available to teams are basically building that local connection like rohit said bring in a star player uh and and sort of like capitalize on their brand equity to to uh to uh, increase or or just perform like right? you have to win and you allow you allow the bandwagoners to join and build up the fan base like those tend to be like the big ways that uh, sports teams can build up their fandom
0: uh i think the challenges to cricket
3: is kind of unique because uh, you know, uh, at least in uh, uh, all the professional league games in the U.S., each league play plays out like hundreds of games, right? Uh, in a in a given season, so it is actually not viable for one person to watch all the games of even one branch except the the
0: NFL NFL is uh, much lesser of course because they, it's probably like 15 16 games per in the team but yeah MLB NBA and all are like hundreds
3: yeah, yeah hundreds so so at least uh, the, the the problem then for cricket is that it it supports various formats in that uh, and but its resources are centralized and the administration is also centralized so you are in fact then, you know, having a limited number of resources, whether in terms of players or facilities, but you want to stretch them across various formats and you have only 12 months a year and then you try to, you know, schedule it. You know, you, you try to cram everything so that you get the maximum value out of your limited resources. So, cricket in itself has to decide. I mean, it's, it's specifically an ICC problem that how it wants to, you know, demarket its, its resources and treat each format as its own separate thing with its own hierarchies and stuff. Otherwise, what's going to happen is that if your resources are minimal, which is the star players, let's say a Kohli or a Ben Stokes is expected to play a test match, you know, and then a one-dayer and then a T20, it's not going to be a viable long-term solution for the game itself and therefore that has, you know, a maximal impact on the fandom as well. So, it, it, it has to start, you know, trying to demarket each format as its own and try to build facilities and resources as its own so that it can build a fan base of its own. A T20 uh, fan doesn't necessarily have to follow, you know, a national game between India or Pakistan. Today there is no differentiation between the two people. They are the same person, right? And uh, so that has to that has to come out. That that diversity has to come out. Or else, what's going to happen is that you are going to exhaust all your resources, and and then it'll become a, an exercise of tedium and repetition. And you might lose to other sports because, as we said in the beginning. Uh, The technology that is available today is not what it was 30 years ago. So people have options of changing the channel and watching, you know, an English Premier League or or a basketball game or whatnot. And people have done so. I mean, a lot of young people that I meet are people who are, you know, invested a lot more into football and basketball or baseball. because, Because primarily it's a matter of cool for them quote-unquote, cool for them. Like, I am not the pleb that follows cricket in India. I am, like, a higher order of being that follows football or, you know, basketball or whatnot. So, I am cool that way because that is also a valid way of fandom. I mean, I I don't uh, look down upon it because that's how probably all of us started also. But that differentiation is... To prevent that differentiation, cricket has to evolve a little bit more. And it has to give some kind of, you know, diverse paths for fans to follow rather than a single timetable that everybody follows then then you'd start to lose out on young people people start making uh, tinkering rules of the game i think you have to look at the game in itself as a uh, uh, as now a three three streamed entity and treat each stream differently so that is something that nobody is thinking about probably that will have you know the maximum impact of fandom let's say 10-15 years down the line if they continue doing this.
1: I think it's going to be interesting with the IPL and please tell me if you feel like this is already happening but I think it's going to be interesting when you start having, you know, what are things that, you know, RCB fans can identify as being like in some ways unique to RCB versus say CSK and not like, you know, if you ask RCB fans why do you watch the IPL and the reasons they're giving are not IPL reasons but like RCB reasons specifically right I think I haven't encountered those so far so I thought like for instance you know CSK when they started the whistle porter campaign I thought that was that was that was cool because like there was something like uniquely Chennai about that in a way that like you know I don't think any of the other franchise cities could claim um, but I think that's when it'll it'll start to get interesting and maybe to Ashoka's point the uh, this is all calculated in the IPL first wants to establish itself as a league, make sure there are IPL fans before getting to like those differentiations. But I think that's when you start seeing that evolution of, uh, of a sport in the league.
0: I think the CSK evolution happened in that uh, season where they were in Pune, right? Where they were based in Pune. And then you had all this like, hundreds and thousands of uh, people from Chennai going to Pune. There were trains running from Chennai to Pune with fans going and supporting. I mean, that was like uh, mind-blowing for to see and to have that sort of connect to a team so entwined that you're willing to do that, right? I mean, there were like all that the organization of that happening. And the very fact of and I think, in a way, uh, you it's, you can argue that the two-year ban actually helped them more than in, in, for in terms of the fans. Because, you know, the absence makes your heart grow fonder at the end and they were missing them so much. And they came back and not only did they come back, they won that season.
3: It is more an exception than a rule. Uh, because uh, Rajasthan Royals, Delhi Capitals, they have been franchises for 15 years as well. But you don't hear the stories. So, there is an... Uh, inequality about uh, fandom in cricket and also there is a lot of, being a cricket fan these days is like being a very schizophrenic entity, right? You, you are the fan for CSK for two months and then you turn around and you become an India fan when India is playing Australia, right? And then you turn around being, you know, a, a fan of a player when that player is playing against South Africa. So it is a very schizophrenic deal and I don't think that is part and parcel of being a fan. I mean, that is not a long-term deal. You have to split or you have to have some sort of diversity option where a T20 fan can, you know, uh, continue being a T20 fan. If he, If he or she wants to expand his or her identity beyond T20, that should be fine, but you have to give a strong base for them. Today, you are forced to be five different things as a fan if you're just following cricket. And that, you know, uh, is not a good uh, foundation for fandom, at least in my experience. I mean, there is is no history building. There is no, you know, something that you can call traditions. These are things that are very important for fandom. And that is something that I think cricket as a a community itself should start thinking about.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the fundamental thing in any kind of uh, sort of relationship you have with the team is that the team and the life uh, that you have is sort of gets entwined, right? Like NFL is a classic example here. Like NFL games happen almost always on Sunday. Uh, If not, they happen on Monday nights, which is uh, marketed as its own Monday night football, or they happen on Thursday night, which has its own thing. But, you know, Sundays is NFL day. And, you know, as uh, uh, it was famously said, I think... uh, Deepak pointed it out that, uh, you know, the NFL took people away from the church and brought them to the, the stadiums so or brought them to the TV. And that is, you know, what bigger achievement can you have for a sport where you are actually diverting people from church on Sunday morning and getting them to watch a sport, right? And Sunday mornings, like anyone who's lived in America would know that. A large part of people devote to NFL. I mean, whether it's whether the stuff they're cooking, the people they're meeting, the places they're going, life is organized around those games on Sundays, and you know the sort of cricket needs to start finding ways to do that. Two points quickly. One is still you brought up the ICL. Still astonishes me that for two seasons there was a team from Lahore, the Lahore Badshahs completely drawn from Lahore, like the Pakistanis playing in India in grounds that were packed. Like, there were grounds in Hyderabad that were just packed to watch the Lahore Batshahs play. And the Lahore Batshahs actually won one season of the ICL. I mean, imagine the sort of the world it was back then, right? Can you even imagine like anything remotely? Even if it comes up for discussion, you're an anti-national today, right? I mean, that's it. You just mentioned a Pakistan team should play in India. That's it. Okay, bye. Get out. Leave. That is one. And number two is that we spoke about television and live experiences, right? I feel that a large proportion of cricket leagues are looking to gain, are are trying to find ways in which they can get TV fans, right? Like, how can we get more people to watch our team on TV or watch our league on TV? That's the way in which they're structured. But the one league that stands out for me in that sense is the CPL, the Caribbean Premier League, which... Basically, for them, it was very hard to get a lot of people outside the Caribbean to watch them on TV because of the time zone, right? You can't, it's very hard for to expect Indians to stay up late or wake up early just to watch like a Caribbean Premier League team. So they went totally the reverse route. They said, at least in the early days, they said, let's focus on the people who live in the specific islands and focus on getting them into these games and making the stadium, getting all the stadiums packed out. So that then we start developing like a connection with the local community and let's build it that way. So that was a very interesting format. And I think the CPL, I mean, they've gone through a lot of ups and downs, but I still think that as a league, they still are quite original in the way that the cricket is maintained. There is, they have managed to get that whole Caribbean party atmosphere in there. People love going to CPL games because for them, it's also like to have some fun. It's not just to watch cricket. It's also to have a drink have fun, support your local team. And they've created that Carnival-like branding very well. And, uh, you know, uh, West Indies domestic cricket doesn't get anywhere as close to that kind of response. But the CPL has become that place where the locals go and support their team. And thankfully also they've had the West Indies has been a T20 dynasty for a while. I mean, uh, you know, they've had some of the greatest T20 players come out of there. And so that's also helped them. Uh, build more fans so yeah I thought I should bring up those points
2: yeah uh, Sidney before we move off this I think like we missed a couple of things that actually uh, cricket has done a good job of like transporting from elsewhere and uh, that give fans skin in the game right one is one is betting <laughs> and let's let's leave the adverse effects of betting aside but betting definitely helps with fans getting skin in the game the other is fantasy sports Uh, And like, that's a huge part of the subculture since you mentioned the NFL, Um, like the NFL, the NFL subculture is almost driven by fantasy sports at this point, uh, to the point where like you have TV shows about people who are in a fantasy sports league together. Uh, so yeah, I yeah, think, yeah. Like, and think I YouTube good.
0: videos of uh, millions of views and all just one guy giving tips for this week's uh, fantasy picks that exactly. some three million views <laughs> it,
2: it, it's it's <laughs> the it's the it's the u s equivalent of the horoscope right know like every day morning <laughs> on a TV channel and on Asta TV someone comes up and says your weekly horoscope it's like
0: the equivalent Dejan, of the Dejan yeah that India India have to play like uh, two uh, left-handers at number 6 and 7 if they have to have a chance of winning. And all
2: <laughs> yeah, basically.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, no, that's true. That's true. Fantasy sports and uh, we did an episode actually with Ashoka uh, and uh, Gaurav Sundaraman on fantasy sports and cricket and how, you know, that is playing a huge role in the IPL itself. And uh, sort of that is also creating its own schizophrenic uh, fandoms because you don't know whether to support your team or to whether to support that guy because he is actually in your fantasy team and all that. So we brought up those aspects of fandom as well.
2: Yeah. Personally, I'm extremely proud that I brought, this, I brought this point up and not Ashoka. So
0: <laughs> I must <laughs> just say that. <laughs>
3: I thought I did a podcast on this, so let me not, you know,
0: <laughs> blow,
2: blow my own trumpet. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah.
0: One issue that I wanted to bring up is the conflict that you have as a fan, right? And now this is uh, becoming quite uh, even more sort of uh, vocal in the Indian cricket context and in the IPL context too. Um, you know, we, we did a podcast about CSK and fandom with uh, a couple of uh, CSK fans, uh, Arvind Arvindase and uh, Tejas, Tejas uh, Jairaman. And they spoke about how, you know, during the time when the whole spot-fixing spot allegations were going on and how they felt quite alienated from the team. And Ashoka was also there at that point. They felt quite alienated from the team because nothing was really being clear to them, like what was happening, why it was happening. There's there not that much transparency, right? So they were feeling alienated. Now, of course, in Indian cricket with the sort of the nexus between the Indian, uh, the, the party in power and the BCCI with... Uh, Jay Shah being a big uh, part of the BCCI. There's also this whole conflict of, you know, people being unsure who is really controlling things. What is happening is how much is the politics and the cricket being really entwined. And so you have this whole set of fans who are like quite not sure, right? Like, like okay, it's it's we're supporting the team, but there's also this whole sense of uh, the party trying to use cricket as a political tool to. You know, either in terms of the triumphalism or in terms of trying to uh, find uh, soft targets uh, of the minorities in India supporting Pakistan, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, whatever. So there are a lot of questions about the loyalty to the team. The NFL, as a classic example was uh, during the whole Kaepernick saga, right? Like he, uh, Colin Kaepernick decided to take a knee because he felt uh, that he had to speak up about injustices to the uh, community, the African-American community. But, uh, you know, that that was such a big uh, sort of a cry about him being um, not, him not being patriotic. And then of course he, he hasn't been signed. He lost his contract. He hasn't been signed after that. And irrespective of what you think of him, the fact is that a player like him not being in the league has its own uh, ramifications in terms of your own family and you, what you think of the NFL. And uh, there are also these other militaristic aspects of the NFL where, you know, you have constantly, you have uh, people in army fatigues coming and <laughs> doing their own thing. You have uh, Air Force, US Air Force flights flying over the thing during before the Super Bowl or before some important games. And that can lead to its own conflict. So... We need to touch upon that a bit, especially in this day and age where, you know, there's so much information. And it's not like before, like when you were probably, you know, Mike Markese talks about it very uh, sort of evocatively in War Minus the Shooting about the whole India-Pakistan game in 96. Um, And I was actually at the game and I felt a degree of discomfort and I sort of vaguely felt what he was saying, but I couldn't articulate it then because I was too young. But the fact is that as a fan, you also are like, sometimes you feel, is this, is this so serious? Like, do we have to take these things so seriously to connect it to all these, uh, you know, uh, nation and army and uh, war and fighting and can't we just treat it like a sport? And so, yeah, you, you do tend to get a bit disillusioned with that whole thing. Um, What are your experiences about that? And where, where do you think one draws the line? I mean, it's, For me, at least, being a cricket fan or a sports fan is constantly living in the state of conflict. Right? It's like, what am I actually watching? I mean, is this even worth it? What? Why should I be watching the NFL and supporting these guys who are like, you know, trying to bring in all these militaristic overtones into it?
1: But at the same time, I'm drawn to the sport. I want to watch it. I don't think this is an especially original point, but you know, everything is political. Like, even you know, when people say sports and politics should mix. Like that is a political stance. That's a political statement, right? And so like I, choosing, choosing to you're always choosing to draw a line. You, you 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 are always choosing to play this game in terms of whether something is a political statement or not. So when you say like, I don't want to consider it and you I'm using the editorial you here, not you, you said, um, if somebody doesn't want to consider it, they're still doing it. They're just, they just have drawing it differently, so I mean that's one thought in that I think you could say one of two things like either oh this bothers me or it doesn't bother me because you know I think it this it's just I'm able to have that separation but I think I don't think that latter statement is that different from saying it doesn't bother me because it doesn't bother me Um, and so I mean that in the context of sports here you know I mean I think famously in the lead up to the 2016 election Bill Belichick you know wrote a letter to Donald Trump and which he tom tommed, and Tom Brady had like a one of those MAGA hats in his locker. And I I, I lived in Boston at the time and I had so many Patriots fans who who were like, oh you know, you know, whatever we separate them. Sports and politics should mix. They always mix. And so um I think the I don't know if there's a comfortable resolution. It's just a discomfort we have to sit with i know that i mean for instance after when not in the political realm but you mentioned spot fixing right when the match fixing saga happened uh in the in the early 2000s um for a while my my grandma was one of the most rabid cricket fans i knew just stopped watching cricket because she was like i just don't get the same thrill out of watching it and this wasn't like her choosing to make a political statement she just didn't feel that visceral thrill anymore and um and i think sometimes i feel the same way like i mean i who don't watch football anyway, and I mean, I think everything around Colin Kaepernick and concussions and the way that the league conducts itself makes it very hard for me to get that kind of thrill, but that's not really a considered statement, you know? Um, me choosing not to care about how the Brooklyn Nets do and Kyrie decided that vaccine mandates are the biggest human rights violation. somehow, um, that was a more considered stance because all of the things being equal, I would still like that team to do well, so...
2: Yeah, I think what I think, like I agree with Roy. He says everything is political, and I think I'm going to say something controversial, which is sports is more important than politics. I I think I'm very much in the camp of, uh, you know, the the the, Shyam line, where like uh, unlike unlike life and death, sports matter. <laughs> uh, so that's that, that's very much my camp, and uh, and so but the. What I what I've actually found when I've been most disappointed with sports, or sports people, or sports teams is when the integrity, in some senses, of the sport itself comes into question. So I was I was a huge Hansi Kronje fan until it was impossible to remain a huge Hansi Kronje fan anymore. In much the same way that I was a huge Azar fan until it was impossible to remain Azar fan anymore. And w- when things like that happen, or for example. When you found out that Tim Donaghy refereed one of the Western Conference finals in 2002 when the Lakers won, like, or, you know, like, uh, you find out that all of the gains that the NFL has made in terms of uh, franchise equity over years has been through hiding the fact that they are basically rendering their players unable to have a reasonable quality of life post 40. Right, like those kinds of things actually material uh, matter to me a lot more uh, than, say, Kaepernick's issue in the NFL. Like, if you ask me, like the concussion issue is a much larger issue because you're you're building <laughs> you're building wealth off of destroying people's lives much more than the fact that a single player like Kaepernick can't play. In fact, like if you think about the two extremes, like the NFL is if you think about the NFL as one extreme of like. Just completely shutting Kaepernick out and not dealing with his his protest in any way at all, versus the NBA's sort of cringy response of having everybody kneel for games for a certain playoff run. I'm like, dude, like it doesn't like it makes no sense. Everybody kneeling is useless. Like it makes, like it doesn't tell me anything. Like he's what 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 uh, Kaep- Kaepernick's stance mattered because he went against the grain. You know, like when it, when the league sanctions something and they print a bunch of t-shirts against it and like immediately to me, it dilutes the value of what Kaepernick did and not, not emboldened.
0: Then that becomes an ad, right? Exactly. What the league is it's, it's, doing is an ad. Yeah.
2: It's an ad for the league, right? Like, it's like, oh, we are the most progressive league. Like, okay, fine, whatever. Like, and it basically all it does is it allows Ted Cruz to go after them. Which means more people will watch what Ted Cruz says and watch what the games do. Like it's just like a symbiotic relationship, which I I, I kind of like. I think like once all that happened, I was like, okay, this is just this is a sideshow. Let's put the sideshow aside. And like sports is more important than that. Because I think like it's one of the like let us just you you can probably count off on one hand the things that truly unify, right? Like these are two you have either two individuals or two teams or two groups of people that are going head to head in the most physical manner possible and at the end have to still shake hands and say good job guys right to me like that is way more important than politics (laughs) so like ultimately like I think I've I've, I, I think anything to do with politics and sports is a bit of a sideshow and things that question the fundamental integrity of the sport itself are far more critical and like cause me to sort of rate my, ramp my fandom up and down than say the political implications of something.
0: But even that, right? Like, see, it also depends on what stage of uh, life and fandom you're in. Like I'll give you an example. Like I stopped watching cricket for like one, nearly like one year in that, 2000-2001 2000 2001 phase, right? Like basically when that match fixing happened, because Azar was like a huge uh, part of my growing up, and you know I had such huge, such fond memories of Azar. And then the moment that happened, I was like, oh, okay, just what's the point, right? And it's only like, and for for a person like me who was basically just totally into cricket, to do that was a was a big deal. And but recently, it's very interesting that. I was having a discussion with uh, a friend of mine here who has no idea of cricket, a friend of mine in America, uh, absolutely no idea of cricket, but a huge baseball fan, and we were talking about wristiness, right, in in baseball and wristiness, and I was trying to tell him how, you know, I'm used to a level of wristiness that is that you will never see in a baseball game. I mean, you you find wristy baseballers, baseball hitters, but so I showed him a few videos of other. Uh, I just sent him a few videos of Aza and then he got so fascinated by Azar that he went and basically just ransacked YouTube for other videos, and he started watching. And he started like telling me about some random games that even forgo- that I had even forgotten about because he found it on YouTube. And he's like, "How oh, the hell did this guy? How how is he doing this and all that?" Now this guy has no idea of Azar What happened to Azar in 2000? Why about this thing? So my question is, like, I I'm feeling a bit bad that eventually he'll find out, and then eventually like he may or may not care because. You know, for him, he's watching Azhar for his wristiness. He's not watching him for anything else. He's watching him for his the way he's batting, right? So, it's interesting how, I mean, eventually, I guess we'll have a conversation. I'll have a chat with him and tell him that how it impacted me. But I'd like to think that he probably won't care as much as I did. Because for me, it was like shaking up my whole foundation. But for him, it's not. So, and should I judge him for it? No, I'm like, okay, he likes watching him, he likes watching him, right? So, it also depends on the phase in which you're in, when you discover these players, what you see in them, and stuff like that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and the severity of the offense itself, right? Like, uh, uh, an individual, like, one ref, like Tim Donaghy being off, doesn't make me call into question everything that ever happens on the field in baseball. Or, in or Hansi and Azar doesn't. It, it may have at one point caused me to question everything that ever happens on a cricket field, but it doesn't anymore, with distance. Uh, but the NFL, like every time I hear a crunch, I'm like, okay, I I can't watch this sport anymore in good conscience, right? And so I'm like, I'm done. I I am completely out. I I cancel my Prime ticket subscription. I don't watch NFL and I don't watch college football anymore either. So any. Any football, I do not watch primarily because everything that happens on the field reminds me of this really, really this subterfuge that completely alters my perception of the sport. And so, like, I, I am unable to watch the NFL anymore, primarily for that reason. Sorry, Ashok. And this you is after something.
0: the movie, is it? This is after that. Will Smith- no, 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 no. Smith after movie, I, before I mean, itself.
2: Before the movie. So once yeah. it once I found out that the league had been for ages like not acknowledging these asks for help. And they had t- tried to discredit the doctor who was trying to bring it to the fore, act, like actively discredit him. like until Once all that came out, <coughs> I pretty much said, okay, I can't watch the NFL anymore. Like this is like in good conscience, I cannot support a sport where all equity and value that's being built for the franchises and the owners is not off of like just underpaying their labor, but like actively destroying their labor, you know? And so that is like a... Really, really tough, like bridge to cross for me.
0: Yeah, but the, the, then, which brings me to the point about the the game itself and the players themselves, and the sort of the other aspects, right? Like the ownership and the league and uh, the country or whatever that you have. I mean, I think uh, Rohit, you had brought up the example of um, you know the Manchester United fans, right? Like if if uh, they've had so much of saga going on in the ownership uh, front. Uh, they've had American owners, they've had all sorts of owners, and but the fans itself are, it's not like, you know, uh, it, it doesn't seem to be as if their fandom for Manchester United has majorly changed. I mean, they, you'll find Manchester United fans come and uh, uh, throw a lot of mud on the owners themselves, but it's not like they are going to abandon their team because of that. But I think that is very different from, say, an Indian setup of an IPL, or maybe even an American setup. If, if, for instance, um, uh, Donald Trump owned uh, an NFL team, uh, for instance, uh, I can imagine. And, and he I'm, did. I'm talking.
2: He was called. He did. He was called Donald Sterling.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, Donald <laughs> Sterling. Yeah. Uh, if uh, I can imagine uh, the sort of a lot of fans. Uh, abandoning that team or for instance in India if uh, there is a notorious character who like you mentioned Malia right like uh, people did think of Vijay Malia when RCB started people do people I'm sure uh, thought of uh, all the other owners who had uh, shady reputations when that came in as well I don't want to name anyone here but I- I'm sure there were many thoughts there so yeah let's uh, talk a bit about that as well because for some it's just the players it's just the team and their relationship with the team is more sacrosanct than whoever may come and own that team.
1: I mean, right, this is where I get back to, like, the imagined communities idea, right? Like, that's this idea that, like, the team just exists separate from ownership. And, I mean, I, I don't think this is entirely an unwarranted idea. I mean, I think there is something to the idea that ownership owes a responsibility to fans um, of the, the place they're in, and which is why it feels especially grotesque when they try to strong-arm cities into money into stadiums or something like that. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's interesting to think at what point that kicks in. I mean, you have a team like Manchester United that has existed for a long, long, long time. And so it's much easier to think of it as an entity that exists separate from the Glazers. From the um, I wonder if people would feel the same way with RCB and Malia, say. Uh, I mean, I would argue that maybe people do, um, but... Maybe that's there's some circuitous logic I'm having here because like part of what that's relying on is the fact that like you no know, maybe RCB wouldn't have the fans that it does if people didn't think of it as a separate entity. So um I'm, I'm not sure where it starts.
0: I think there's a cultural issue here as well. I think it's I think uh, it's different in different parts of the world, and it's also got to do with I mean I think in America partly it's also because it's sport is so in, intertwined in culture and life, and also is seen as this. You know, when teams leave, I mean, like, uh, you know, there are documentaries on this and I think the Baltimore Colts were a classic example of uh, basically decided to pack up and move and they moved to Indianapolis. And there's a whole documentary on this in ESPN, 30 for 30, check it out. And the sort of betrayal that the fans felt on that day for when the team left. I mean, even even today, it's like, you know, they, they... uh, 60 70 year old fans talk so deeply and passionately about it same thing in Seattle where i live you know when the seattle supersonics uh, moved moved i mean there's uh, a lot of uh, people i know don't even watch basketball anymore after that day when the team left because they felt a sense of deep betrayal um, i don't know how that will work out in the ipl i mean there have been teams that have been sort of uh, that have gone away they don't exist anymore But I don't think like a team in Kochi, for instance, uh, looks uh, so, you know, has abandoned the IPL because the Kochi Tuskers don't exist anymore. And I think also IPL is probably too young in its, uh, it's not met sort of, it's way too raw in its fandom and evolution. Maybe, you know, 10 years down the line if CSK uh, says, you know, we're moving ship, the IPL basically says, you know, this franchise has to move somewhere else and change their name. Maybe fans like Ashoka will feel that deep sense of betrayal. But uh, I think as of now, they're not there yet. So it's hard to say how that will be. It'll be interesting to see that though.
2: Yeah, I think the IPL is kind of unique in the sense that most of the owners had their own giant public persona independent of the sport itself, right? Like Shah Rukh and Preeti Zinta and Ambani uh, Shil- and, yeah. Ambani's and Shilpa Shetty. In fact, if you think about it, like... En Srinivasan is probably the least well known of the of the rest of, of the owners when he's
0: in, in fact the, been more involved in cricket than anyone else
2: yeah exactly But he, but and he
0: made it up in like uh,
3: 5, five six years he became well known later
2: <laughs> yeah so that's the interesting thing for me is that en Srinivasan's legend has grown with the legend of CSK it's the it's the, one of the few cases like in in much the sense that they here right like uh, Nobody like nobody even knew that Jerry Bus was a PhD and not a real doctor <laughs> for many years when he was owning the the Lakers. They just know him as Dr. Bus. And like they, the Dr. Bus's legend grew with the legend of the Lakers. Uh, in in much the same way that happened. Like there are like I think was Sunivas' legend pretty much grew with the legend of CSK. Like, like I think if you were from originally from Chennai, you knew who he was and you knew what India Simmons was and stuff. But Most people didn't know, you know, uh, and I think, like, he's actually the prime example of how ownership can actually leverage the team to build their own sort of brand equity if they they wanted one. Uh, And...
0: But, but also, it's the reverse, right? N Srinivasan uh, was, uh, you know, had his own issues in the BCCI and uh, during that whole spot-fixing scandal, there was a lot of uh, stuff come out about him. But it's not like the CSK fans necessarily... It's not like their relationship with the team changed because of that. It changed... It, I mean,
2: I think uh, it probably grew a bit stronger. Yeah, no. Also. So, the the, the the primary relationship was with the team and not with N. Srinivasan. That's the point I was trying to make. Yeah. Like... Uh, I still remember the advent of the IPL like there are Shah Rukh Khan fans who decided to follow KKR, right? Like that, that was the thing like that, that, in fact, like I would say that was the design almost is that you would have these people's fans sort of flowing into the game. Uh, yeah, I, CSK is one of those few teams where the fandom started with the team and so like those are, the, those are the cases where it didn't matter and Oftentimes there are, like in franchise sports, teams can stay with cities and owners can change. Like that's happened. The Dallas Mavs, for example, right? Cuban bought it. And in fact, it became more of the team of the city because Cuban is from Dallas. And uh, he he made changes that sort of like reflected the, the character of the city in some sense. So uh, the uh, I think ownership is also fungible in, in in when it's a true marketplace i don't think that is the case though with the ipl I, I, like I, I don't think ownership is good. like it's not like the Ambaris are not selling the mumbai indians anytime soon you know like that's not going to happen but the interesting bit that is happening is
0: that um you know ipl teams are now spreading their wings right like the south african league for instance um has uh, ipl sort of uh, connections there's teams in the west in the caribbean premier league that uh, has ipl connections like the trinibago night riders and you know there are all these uh, teams there so eventually if we do reach a stage where there are ip there's ipl ownership in various countries it'll be interesting to see how those fan bases then react to uh, the change of ownership or the news that comes in some scandal that happens or something related to the ownership so that will be interesting like south africa for instance will will the fans of that johannesburg team be extremely sort of a bit feel betrayed if something happens from the ownership front so that will be an interesting trend to watch out for in say the next 10 years
3: and and secondly i mean at least with the ipl teams the way they were designed and I hate to use this term, top of the funnel. They were the top of the funnel for their owners, right? Like they bring in a lot of fans from which they can then sell all their other goods. And uh, so that that is like a marketing property, which is now assuming its own identity, as you can say. Like once they realized, oh, this is a profitable venture in and of its own. Um, I think the other day I was telling you guys that uh, uh, CSK has its own set of Unlisted shares, which are which which are very valuable. Uh, so so in and of itself, how many do
0: you how many do you own? How many shares uh, do you
3: own? I, I am not that rich. I am only rich <laughs> enough to watch it. I am not rich enough to buy stakes. So so anyway, I mean th- th- now they are realizing that this is a and I think CSK is one of those few franchises which is valued at a billion. So it has a unicorn valuation. Uh, is what I heard so therefore now they are realizing that this is in fact an entity in and of its own that uh, can be governed with its own organization so so now that dynamic is changing and ownership is now on, not just ownership it's also membership right like uh, CSK I don't think can give up Dhoni the same way RCB can give up Kohli, if they stop playing, they still have to be associated in one way or the other because now they are like the entry point for clubs to bring their members in uh, or the patrons or the fans or whoever to bring them in. And
0: they have become like like part of the property. So, they'll be like mentors and all you're saying.
3: Yeah, yeah. So, they will be part of the uh, ecosystem uh, uh, for a long time to come because uh, uh, that is like the... Name association with the brand like you can't talk about CSK without mentioning Doni, RCB without mentioning Kohli, uh, Mumbai Indians without mentioning Sachin or you know Rohit Sharma. So that so now they are realizing that these are things that need to be handled. This is not how it started, but now it is evolving into a, a venture of its own. I mean franchises are now becoming uh, you know organizations that I don't even think IPL itself. Imagined them to be. Uh, now I think this will be interesting because I think now they'll have far more greater clout, or uh, financial clout, or in terms of mobility of players and whatnot, to influence decisions of the league itself. And that is something that will be interesting. But from a fandom point of view, I think consolidation of power is always, you know, uh, a bad thing for a fan. Because you are going to get what they are going to show you. Not what you want. So, so I, I I, don't think that's a good idea. But, I mean, good news for fans. But, great news for all those eight or nine guys who
0: own, you know, IPL uh, teams. So, uh, yeah. So, thanks so much for joining. Um, uh, Rohit, uh, Deepak and Ashoka. A lot of things to think about. Interesting conversations. Maybe next time when you watch a game, you might... Uh, Think of uh, fandom in your own, you know, you might have your own thoughts about fandom. So, yeah, write to us, uh, tweet us, uh, leave a comment on the website. Um, 81allout.com is the website, at 81allout on Twitter. And, uh, you know, as I had mentioned earlier on the podcast, uh, please pick up the books we have republished. I'll give the link to Cricket Beyond the Bazaar and War Minus the Shooting. Uh, both fantastic books, uh, the first by Mike Coward and the second by Mike Markese. So pick it up, uh, read it and uh, let us know what you think of it. Um, otherwise, yeah, thanks for joining and uh, we'll see you soon. India have won the test match. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India at home. Lords goes wild.